it's good to, uh, I'd say see you all, but you're the only one that can uh, uh, see through the screen. Um, anyway, uh, it does turn out that the weather was not quite as bad as we anticipated, uh, but, you know, only God knows the weather, so we just do our best to try to make good guesses and keep uh, everyone safe, because uh, we know that driving on ice is certainly uh, a very dangerous uh, condition. So anyway, but I was it was reported to me this morning that uh, the conditions were pretty good and uh, some even wanted to come in, which, you know, uh, is fine if people want to do that, of course. But I said, all you're going to do is see me stare at a screen. So if you if that's helpful, then, you know, uh, that's fine. But otherwise, uh, maybe just stay home and, and watch online. All right. Well, it is uh, good to be with you. Uh, via computer screen. I'd much rather be looking at you in the uh, pews and interacting with everyone, but uh, we'll, we'll take what we can do. Well, before we get started this morning, let me go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. And then as you uh, grab your coffee and maybe sitting at the table eating breakfast, hope uh, we'll get into the passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, let me go ahead and open this up in a word of prayer. So pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for giving us the ability to open your word together, even if it's not uh, in, in person, which is ultimately what we want. We know is your plan. We know that's what is good. Um, but we are thankful in these times to at least have this. And so I do pray that by your spirit who indwells each of us, that even knowing that we are gathered together around your word as a local church, that you would knit our hearts uh, together in unity as we are walking together through the study of the book of the Revelation of Revelation. We ask this morning that you would guide us, that you would be our teacher. Father, we pray this morning for Siv, who was uh, moved to the ICU yesterday because of COVID. We ask God, your mercy to her physically, that you would restore her health. We do ask, O oh Lord, that you would give all those involved with her treatment wisdom and grace to perform their job well. And we pray more than anything that uh, you would sustain her heart with the sense of your presence, that you will never leave her and that you will never forsake her and that you are safely in her, uh, in your hands. And Lord, use her life and her faith as a witness to those around her who do not know you. And so we commit her to your care and we commit her to your hands. And Father, again, we now come to your word. We ask that you would give us grace to see your glory in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as it was anticipated in the book of Zechariah. So to that end, we pray. And we do so in the name of him who came, him who lived, him who died, him who rose, him who is now at your right hand, and him who is returning for us, the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, as you noted, uh, if you were listening at all to the prayer or those who are just now coming in, uh, we're going to come back again to the book of Revelation. And as we come to Revelation 4 through 8, and this, I promise, will be the concluding message uh, on this section of Revelation. But as I noted before, it's uh, thematic, uh, it's uh, foundational, I mean, uh, towards uh, to uh, a lot of the rest of the book. And although we are going to come back to some of these passages and other passages in the Old Testament 
uh, as we go throughout the book of Revelation, particularly the book of Daniel, um, it thought it was important to take a step back and show how the message of God through the Apostle John is a fulfillment. It is consistent with, it is in the trajectory of his promises that begin all the way back in the garden, really, and then through the stream of all of the writers of Scripture under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in anticipation of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even now, as we anticipate his coming. And so the goal here is really to show the, the cohesiveness and the unity of Scripture. And, and in doing that, I want to just remind us of some important truths. And uh, familiar for many of us, new maybe to some of us, uh, one truth is this, that the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. It is the New Testament is the fulfillment of what was promised in the old. It is in some ways the inauguration of that fulfillment, the first steps of that fulfillment, particularly in light of the coming kingdom of Christ and the fullness of our salvation and so forth. But the foundation for the New Testament is the Old Testament. It is the promises of God. Secondly, and remind us that a central promise and hope of the Old Testament is the coming of a savior, of one who would conquer the work of Satan that was brought, who brought sin into the world in Genesis chapter 2, a savior who would come from God, who would bring forgiveness and salvation, who would come to establish a kingdom, who would come to bring justice and peace to the earth, and again restore the presence of God among his image bearers and among his creation. And central to the Old Testament is the role of prophecy. And as is noted before, prophecy plays a key role in showing God's sovereign control over all of history, over the nations, over creation, to bring about his promised salvation and even his promised judgment on all of those who continue in rebellion to him. Prophecy is also a key apologetic of Scripture. Indeed, God is very specific in his prophetic anticipation of what he will do. And he has spoken in such a way and written it down and given it to us that we might know that it is the word of God, that it is from him, for only God can make a promise and keep it. It is also to show that he is indeed the author of all of Scripture. Uh, we're familiar with some of the statistics that there are 66 books, uh, or 40 authors, written over a span of nearly 1,500 years of all walks of life and so forth. And yet, Scripture speaks with one voice because it has one ultimate author, and that is God himself, particularly God the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. And prophecy brings us to those truths, and it, it confronts us with them, and it encourages us with the reality that the written Word of God is, in fact, just that, the Word of God to us. And so John draws on all of that, as indeed it does all of Scripture, even in these statements in the opening of the book of Revelation, to assure his people that God who made a promise is God who will keep his promises. So with that being said, let me read for us uh, verses 4 through 8 of Revelation chapter 1, and then we're going to jump back down again to verse 7. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, 
to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So again, John is laying here a foundation to give hope to those to whom he is writing and to the church throughout the ages that God is working. God is on his throne. God will bring about his promise. Don't get stuck in the worry and the anxiety of your situation. Know that your future is secure. And he does that in what could be easily missed or at least taken more lightly than we should by building and assuring us that what God is going to do is what God had already said he would do. Now, we noted last week at the beginning of verse 7 that the phrase, behold, he is coming with the clouds, is taken from the book of Daniel, particularly Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. It is an anticipation of this coming one, the Son of Man, who is going to come and establish a kingdom, a kingdom that will be an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom that stands in contrast to the temporary kingdoms, those kingdoms that rise and have a glory for a period of time, but ultimately are taken away by God in judgment so that he can establish another kingdom to accomplish his purposes for that period, that God stands over it all. And at the center of God's sovereignty through nations is his future establishment of his own nation and his own king of a redeemed people. And that is a kingdom and a nation that will never pass away. And so that is the encouragement, even as we Consider the background of that promise that he is coming with the clouds. And we'll remember that it is a promise that Christ himself repeated as he stood before the Jewish leaders who were giving him a false trial and ultimately with the intention of handing him over to the Romans. It is a promise that Jesus reminded his disciples of earlier in anticipation of his return after he tells them of the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and then a greater destruction that is to come uh, even yet in the future. And it is a promise that he reminds us of here through the Apostle John. The second statement, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be amen is also taken from the Old Testament. And here it is taken from the Old Testament book, Zechariah, who is one of the minor prophets. Particularly, it's taken from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and really in a section there, verses 10 through verse 14. So again, as we did with Daniel, let's take some time at front here and understand the context of this promise. Understand the fullness of what God is saying here to encourage us. And to do that, we'll have to turn back to the book of Zechariah. So you can go ahead and do that. It's one of the minor prophets, so maybe an easier way to get there is to, if you're not familiar with it, is to start at Matthew and just start working your way back uh, a couple of books, and you'll come to the book of Zechariah. Uh, be sure that you uh, make the distinction. It's not Zephaniah, but it is Zechariah. So it is the book of Zechariah right after the book of Haggai. Now, just to give some general context of Zechariah, he's, he's writing to uh, the Jewish nation 
at the after the exile is over and God is beginning to return his people to the land. And you'll remember that just as Judah and was taken away in three exiles and Jerusalem destroyed at the end, the, the final exile. So there were three returns to the land that began really about 538 B.C. and concluded around 445 B.C., beginning with the issue of the decree of Cyrus and being completed the last return under the leadership of Nehemiah, who was signed with rebuilding the walls. Zechariah is written during that time, and while it's hard to put an exact date on it, it was certainly written sometime before or 518 BC. So 518 BC. Now, in this time of God returning his people to the land, they enjoyed many providences of God. And these providences came through secular leaders who even provided them with material to return back to the land and to begin the building the foundation of the temple again and, and necessary materials to get settled back to the land that they were exiled from. Uh, during this time as well, there were faithful Israelites who returned, and yet even as they returned back to the land, there were still issues of sin and complacency and self-centeredness that the prophets had to deal with. And so while God used many providences through secular leaders to bring them into the land, he also was very gracious to send them prophets to continue to encourage them in the work, to exhort them, to call them to repentance, and also to remind them of God's ultimate purposes uh, for the temple and for his people. Zechariah was one of the prophets that God used to do that, to speak to the people who were coming back into the land of Jerusalem from exile, who were tasked with reestablishing the temple, the worship of the temple, and the city. So his purpose for writing then is, is just that, composed of about eight visions and several oracles of God, which is simply God speaking uh, statements to his nation, God speaking directly to his nation through the prophet. Uh, through these, Zechariah then is writing to encourage them with the certainty of God's sovereign purposes. Uh, let me just point your attention to a few passages here in the beginning in Zechariah chapter 1, uh, verse 13. It says, The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me gracious and comforting words. And the angel who was speaking with me said, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Verse 15, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for I was only a little angry. They furthered the disaster. Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. He says in verse 17, my cities will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And so he's telling them that what God has begun, God will finish. God has a heart for Jerusalem. He has put his name there. He has established the fulfillment of his promises in Jerusalem. And so they can be encouraged in God's sovereign purposes. And this encouragement is not only what God will do, but an exhortation for them to be consistent with these promises and do what God has called them to do in reestablishing both the construction of the temple and again, of course, ultimately its worship. Uh, this is seen in chapter four. He says at the hands of Zerubbabel, uh, verse eight, chapter four, also the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it. 
then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. And he goes on. He's saying, finish the work. God is with you. Don't be slack in what he has caused you to do. But far beyond even just the immediate historical situation of them rebuilding the temple, Zechariah, through God, by under inspiration of the Spirit, has a main focus, not simply on what they were doing in the present in establishing the temple as they were coming back into the land, that is uh, the second temple, uh, but he is anticipating God's future purposes for the land of Israel and for the temple. And so there is a primary emphasis in the book of Zechariah of the eschatological work of God related to his people, related to his people and related to the land. And he is the one who then will ultimately fulfill it. And he is the one who will ultimately build the temple. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, verse 13, he says this, Yes, it is he who will build the temple. We'll come back to this. The temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus, he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. And here then, God also introduces another key feature that we'll look at a bit later. And namely this, that God will be faithful to his promises That requires the people to respond to God's instructions to rebuild the temple. But ultimately, it isn't the temple that they will build that will stand. It is the temple that God will build with his own hands and by one whom he has appointed. And in this, we have the introduction or we have the certainty that God will do this through one whom he has appointed, a man, a branch. In other words, the Messiah. Now, before we get to Zechariah 12, verses 10 through 14, which is the background, specific background for Revelation 1-7, I want to just give a very broad overview, and this is by no means exhaustive and in many ways not even comprehensive, but I want to give a broad overview of some of this eschatological themes and context of the book of Zechariah in which we come to chapter 12, uh, verses 10 through 14. Now, Let me consider then these promises of the future salvation and judgments for Israel and for the nations, for the nations. Now, beginning with Israel, uh, the history of Israel would seem to indicate that the fulfillment of God's purposes for them is hopeless. Indeed, they are a nation that has been marked from her beginning with a turning away from the Lord, despite all of the advantages that God give her. Ultimately, even with apostasy, indeed, that's that's the whole context of their return to the land, is they're having been put out of the land uh, because of their sin against Yahweh. And so really, it is the sin of the people that becomes the greatest obstacle to God's fulfillment of his plans, But it is also the sins of the people that gives the greatest guarantee that whatever future God has planned for his people, it is going to come from his hand. Indeed, it must come from his hand. And at the center of whatever work he will do for his people, it will require the removal of their sin. Now, we've looked at this passage in the past. I want to just go back and briefly remind you of it. In Zechariah chapter 3, God makes this abundantly 
clear. This is the scene of Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is there as well in verse 1. And Satan is accusing him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Joshua was clothed with filthy garments standing before the angel of the Lord. Just stop there and make one observation. Joshua was the high priest. He had already gone through the ceremonial cleansing. He would have been one of, in this case, one of the most righteous of Israel. And yet he's standing before the Lord clothed in filthy garments. It is a reminder that if salvation is going to come again, it must come from God. Even the best of men is still guilty before God. And we have a reminder there even of Isaiah's own experience when he came into the temple of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. And when in the presence of perfect holiness, he became acutely aware of his own sin. And in that case, too, God cleansed him. And so he does here. He says, remove in verse four, the filthy garments from him. See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And he goes on. And while Joshua is the centerpiece here, Joshua stands representatively for the nation of Israel, for the people of God. As God is going to remove the iniquity of Joshua, so God ultimately will for his people. And that will be the foundation of the kingdom that he will bring and that he will establish. God is the one who will sovereignly bring about his purposes. And Israel's own sin and the sin of his people cannot stop it. For God will provide for that as well. God will provide for that as well. So he's reminding through Zechariah, Israel, that they are to look to their God to bring about his promise. And they are to be faithful to this God who has made the promise. He will certainly judge sin, even as he had in the past, so he will in the future. But ultimately, his kingdom will be established. And here's the amazing truth, and here's the glory and the hope of the prophets that in light of the sin of the nation of Israel, in light of her rebellion, in light of her continual treachery, what God has promised for the future is a time of peace and a time of blessing, a time when the removal of sin will be the experience of all who dwell in his presence. Back in chapter 3, right after this episode with Joshua, he says in verse 8, Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol for behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. And behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in that day. Again, Joshua is representative of what God will do. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, God is bringing a time of peace. God is bringing a time of peace that is associated with the removal of the sin of his people. God is bringing a time of peace that is associated with the arrival of the branch of the Messiah, of the one who will mediate this work of his. It is a glorious picture. He said it in another way to illustrate this time of peace over in chapter 2. 
He says, and he said to him, run and speak to that young man saying to Jerusalem, saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle in the Lord uh, within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her and I will be the glory in her midst. God is saying a time is going to come when you won't need the protection of a wall. That's what a wall, a main function, a wall served as in, in the ancient Near East. It was protection against enemies. It was a it was a fortified city, a way that the inhabitants could be spared from those who would bring harm to her. And yet God is saying a time is going to come. You won't need any walls. There will be no threat that is a real threat to you for God will be in your midst. This is a glorious promise, a glorious promise. It is a time of peace. It is a time of hope in which all of the good that God has declared for his people will come about. One said this, Jerusalem is no longer viewed simply as the heart of Judaism, but as the center of God's dealing with all the nations and as a glorious realization of the ancient promise given to Abraham. And so these promises, what he's bringing out here then, are not merely promises for Israel. Israel became very Israel-focused and Israel-centered. Yes, these promises are for Israel. Yes, there will be peace. Yes, God will remove the sin of his people and the iniquity of the land. Yes, God will establish a time of great prosperity that will coincide with the appearance of the Messiah. Yes, that is going to come about, but this promise is not only for Israel. It's not only for Israel. Israel, if you remember the Abrahamic promise, was ultimately, although he made that to Abraham, Israel was to come as a nation later, be formed as a nation after their time in Egypt. But the ultimate promise was that this promise to Abraham, in which he, through whom he would form a nation, would ultimately result in being a blessing to the earth. Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's not something that Israel really embraced much throughout her history. Uh, you can remember, you know, an extreme example of that uh, with the prophet uh, sent to ne uh, Nineveh, Jonah who was sent to Nineveh and he was uh, actually angry at God because he was going to save such a wicked nation. And yet that was always God's purpose, that he would bring salvation to the world and the vehicle was to be Israel. So Zechariah points us to that fact and to the reality that Messiah's kingdom will not simply be centrally located. And in other words, God's purposes aren't merely only, well, it will be centrally located in Jerusalem, but his purposes aren't only for Jerusalem, but how Jerusalem will expand out and be a blessing to all of the nations, to all of the nations. And so listen to just some of the ways he describes this. In chapter two, verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day. In that day, when? This day of salvation. This future time of the presence of the Messiah on earth, uh, the future time when the kingdom is realized. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. He says the same thing over in chapter 8, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It will 
yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. And so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Again, God's purposes for Israel are ultimately to be a blessing to the nation. Says something similar in chapter 9, verses 7 through 8. He says, I will remove their blood from their mouth, speaking of pagan nations and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army. And then he goes on and he says that he will be ultimately the defender of his people. Indeed, he even ends the book with this anticipation of many nations coming up to worship God, he says in verse 16 of Zechariah 14, then it will come about that any who are left of the nations that went against Jerusalem will come up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In other words, God's intention was always that Israel would be a nation, a blessing to the nations. God's purposes even more broadly and more specifically are that he would bring salvation to his image bearers. Israel was given the privilege of being a covenant people to receive the promise, to receive the blessing of God in their midst in the temple. But that was never to be an end in itself. It was to be a means to an end as well, that through their worship, many would become from all of the nations to know God, the true God who created them in his image as well as Israel herself. And so this coming kingdom will be a time of peace. It'll be a time when iniquity is removed from the land, when iniquity is removed from his people. It will be a time that's associated with the coming of this one who would be a mediator for God's work. It will be a time of magnificent change on the earth, even geographical change that will coincide with the appearance of the one who is to bring both judgment and salvation. As a matter of fact, he mentions this in verse 9, speaking of the time of the return of the king. He says, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one in verse 10. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel, Hananel to the king's wine presses. He anticipates a time when there will be no more curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. He backed up to verse 4. This is coinciding with the return of this one who is going to come in judgment. And he says that Jerusalem or the Mount of Olives will be split in the middle of verse 4. The Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half toward the south. And it is in that valley that his people will flee to the mountains 
And yet, in that context, there will be this great earthquake, and the Lord will return. It is a magnificent time, a magnificent time in this case of judgment that is going to bring to account all who oppress and rebel against him, but a time of salvation to his people. It'll bring great changes in the land. It'll bring geographical changes, and it'll be a time of spiritual renewal. As a matter of fact, Jesus referred to this time when he was encouraging his disciples in Matthew chapter 24. And they were saying, what will be given to us who have left everything to follow you? And Jesus encourages them with this very same idea that Zechariah is pointing us to. He encourages them with the reality that a time is coming where whatever sacrifice is made here will be more than abundantly repaid. Excuse me, I said Matthew 24, I meant Matthew 19. And he says this, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit on your 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The regeneration here speaks of a newness brought to the earth, a change, fundamental changes, something that is made new, something that was dead and made alive, something that was corrupt, made pure. And it'll bring great changes on the earth. And I just want to make a side note here that neither Zechariah or Jesus in Matthew can be referring to the present time of the church. Here the nations are judged in Zechariah 14. There the, the apostles are judging other nations, making decisions of right and wrong. And Christ is present on the earth and both of these promises and conditions remain that are not a part of the eternal state. No, this is speaking of a kingdom that is a unique kingdom and a unique day. And it is centered on God's work in the Messiah. So now that's a very broad look, but now let's get more specific at that very truth, that God will bring this about through the work of the Messiah. He will be God's ultimate agent. And that is where the glory of God's prophetic portrait of his promises and his future salvation come to shine here in this one who will both atone for the sins of his people and who will accomplish God's purposes. Now, we've already noted that this is a figure alluded to in the book of Zechariah. He is called the branch in chapter three, the branch there tapping into Isaiah's previous prophecy made in the eighth century BC in which there's the promise in Isaiah 11, we read it every time at Christmas, that the branch of Jesse, from the root of Jesse, one will come. This is the branch who is the Messiah. He will be endowed with wisdom and with strength and so forth. And it is at his appearing on the earth that the curse will be removed and the lion will lay down with the lamb and so forth. These fundamental changes will come to the earth. But Zechariah paints this picture for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It has a certain enigma to it as well. Who is this one who will come? What is the nature of this one who will come? What is the nature of his work? And indeed, these are the kind of promises that would have that were meant to inform the people of God who would be present when the Messiah did come. Inform them of the characteristic of his coming, both of his person, of his work, 
and really even of the character of the nation to whom he would appear. The nation, the character of the nation at the time of his appearing. Again, let's just very, very briefly consider some of these points. What is the nature of this one who will come? Well, while this isn't as explicitly laid out, it is an unavoidable conclusion implicit that this one who is to come is associated as well with the angel of the Lord. So the Messiah and the angel of the Lord in Zechariah are linked. And this angel of the Lord has more than the characteristics of man. He has, in fact, the recognition as deity, as God. This one who is going to come is going to be identified with Yahweh, the Lord. Let me just show you a couple of examples of that. Now, already in the back chapter one, it's been established that this message is being brought to Zechariah through the angel of the Lord. Look at chapter two, verse eight. And here is a message, part of that message from the angel of the Lord. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Okay, well, we have two figures here. We have the Lord of hosts, which is the God of Israel, and sent me this one, this messenger, this one who's to come. Verse 10, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. So this me, who is not the Lord of hosts, is going to be the one that dwells in the midst of his people. Verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And then I will dwell in their midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Indeed, it is the Lord of hosts who will dwell in their midst and the dwelling of the Lord of hosts will be in the one whom he has sent. In the one whom he has sent. And then he says in verse 12, the Lord Yahweh there will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. It will be his holy habitation because he is dwelling in its midst through this one who is coming. You see something similar there in chapter 3, and there's many other. I'm just highlighting a couple at the beginning. In chapter 3, verse 1, it is the angel of the Lord It is he who showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand, the right hand of who? The angel of the Lord. And then here we have in verse two, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you here. Presumably the one is the angel of the Lord. Those are the two characters, the angel of the Lord and Satan. And then Joshua, the third, who is standing before them. So it's Yahweh who is speaking to Satan. Who is Yahweh speaking to Satan? This is the angel of the Lord. And what does he say? The Lord rebuke you. So the angel of the Lord, who is the Lord speaking to Satan, is also the Lord Yahweh calling on the Lord Yahweh to rebuke him. Again, you just see the connection here. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And then in verse four, he spoke and said to those standing before him, this is the angel of the Lord. Remove the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away and will clothe you with festal robes. This angel of the Lord is separate from the Lord, but identified with Yahweh. And yet this one speaking as well is the one who will remove the iniquity of his people. And so this is the kind of interaction that you see through the angel of the Lord, through this coming messenger and 
Yahweh of the Old Testament. And again, just as a little footnote here, we see that same thing throughout all of Scripture. But you'll remember, even as we looked at the beginning of the message in Revelation chapter 1, God returning, God the Father returning, is coincided with, it is, it is encompassed in the return of Christ, the Messiah. I am coming, he says uh, in chapter 1, verse 4. He is the one who is to come, and yet it is also the Son of Man. Behold, I am coming in the clouds. The Son of Man coming in the clouds is also connected inextricably with the presence of the Father. And again, even there's a lot of footnotes, but a footnote here, we, we get, a, we get a, a picture here, almost a, an anticipation here of Jesus' own interaction when he was the, the Son incarnate on earth in Matthew chapter 9, when he forgave sins. You remember the friends of the paralytic led him down through the earth. He says, your sins are forgiven. Who forgives sins but even God? The implication is, with Jesus saying that, he speaks with the authority of God. He has the one who has the right to do that because he indeed, though fully man, is truly God and truly man. Let me just give one other example of this. And you can feel the kind of tension that these original readers would have felt when reading this in chapter 12, verse 10. We're going to, of course, come back to that. But in chapter 12, verse 10, he says this, I will pour out on the house of David. Who is the I will pour out? This is God. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant God of Israel. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me. Who's me? The Lord who's pouring out the spirits whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Again, we'll come back to that. So here it is Yahweh speaking, and yet Yahweh saying, I am the one they have pierced and the one whom they will have mourned. Again, I just want you to just, by quick observation, notice the consistency with the appearance of Christ. Christ made the promise, too, that I will ascend to the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit, and Christ will send the Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, he ascended to the right hand of the Father as the exalted Christ and received the promise from him and poured it out on the day of Pentecost. The point simply is here, the nature of this one to come is more than merely a man. But he is no less than a man. He is no less than the man. And his humanity of this one who's to come is clearly displayed as well. Let's go back. We read it earlier. Let me read it again. Chapter 6, verse 12. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. He, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will build the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be through the two offices. King and priest with two offices, they were to be unmixed in the Mosaic Covenant. And yet here is one who will be a king. This is the one who will be the promised king of David, who will sit on David's throne. It is the Davidic king that was anticipated by the people of God. He will be the Davidic king, and yet he will also be priest. He will also be priest. And here then we see as well the echo of David's own anticipation of this one who will come in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, you remember these words well. Let me read it. 
Verses 1 through 4, the Lord said to my Lord, this is David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He will rule in the midst of your enemies. In verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. That is, this one who is coming is at the right hand of Yahweh, at the Father, and he will shatter kings in the day of wrath, and he will judge among the nations. Jesus used that when he confronted leaders who were trying to trick him to, to show them their ignorance of the nature of this one to come. Who was David speaking to? And if he called him Lord, then who is the Lord of David that he was speaking to. In other words, there are two people that David is referencing here, and both of them have this privileged nature of deity, of divine glory. And yet one is going to come who is going to have a presence among his people, a presence observed, a presence to accomplish the work of God as a man, to be a priest, to be a king, and so here he is as well. And so this one who's going to come has a nature of divinity. He has the nature of God. He also has the nature of man. He's, he's one who will fully fulfill on earth in humanity the promise given to David that one will sit on his throne, the promise that David recognized that the enemies will be put under his feet and he will also function as a priest, a priest to God. Who is this one? He's also going to be a king. The idea of his kingship is stated in a couple of places, but in chapter 9, verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So one who's going to come is going to come in peace. He's going to come in peace. And the one who comes in peace is going to be your king. Yet again, there's these strange statements scattered throughout. This one who's going to come is also in some way going to be rejected and sold by his people. Look at chapter 11, verse 10. God says that even though he's coming, even though he speaks of peace, even though he speaks of forgiveness, there's also judgment involved with this. I took my staff a favor, he said, and cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. And thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. There's Zechariah. He said, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. And so they weighed out 30 pieces of shekel, 30 out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter that that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. And here the anticipation is this, speaking of Zechariah, but showing that Zechariah is being treated as a prophet of God and the rejection of him is the rejection of God. So there is an anticipation of here somewhat more because this is still speaking of a time future. So why this in one sense was a lot for Zechariah, it was not fulfilled in Zechariah, Fully, for the time in which this will happen is a time in which God is breaking his covenant with Israel. And that was not the historical situation of Israel at the time. 
God was, in fact, restoring them to the land. And so he says, then, 14, then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel, and on he goes. And so this is something anticipating something in Maddox, something about this one who's going to come, something that God is going to do, uh, something that God is going to bring about in these unusual conditions. Not only is he the king who will enter in with symbols of peace on the donkey, he's also a king who's going to come in judgment. Obviously anticipated there in chapter 11, but brought to its climax in Zechariah chapter 14. He's a king who also will come in judgment. We read it earlier. Let me read it again in verse 9. Well, actually, you can back up. In verse 13, or verse 3 of chapter 14, he's coming in judgment against the nations who are arrayed against Israel. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. He says in verse 7, it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, it will come about at evening time. There will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. He says it will be that way in summer as in winter. And he goes on. And then he says in verse 12, he speaks of the plague that will come upon all of those as a part of the judgment that God will bring this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouth. This is a supernatural judgment. And it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of the one will be lifted against the hand of another. And Judah also will fight at Jerusalem. So here's a strange time. He comes in peace, and yet he comes in judgment. He comes to bring salvation, and yet he comes to deal with the iniquity of his people. He comes as one to be honored as the Davidic throne, and yet he comes as one who's going to be rejected by his people. It's, who is this one? He's going to come. He's going to come, and yet he's going to be one who is pierced and will cause the mourning of the people when they realize what they've done, again, verse 10. And he's one who's going to be rejected and pierced not only by his people, but by God himself. Look at verse 7 of chapter 13. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Wow. Here's a time of judgment where... This one coming who is king, who will bring peace, who will establish salvation, is also going to be rejected by the people, who is also going to be struck by the Lord himself. And of course, here we have those echoes of what Isaiah had already anticipated in Isaiah chapter 53. That one is going to come, and he is one who will be pierced by the Lord, the one who will stand in the place of the nation of Israel for their sin. Tell me if this sounds familiar, verse 5 of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. So this one who's going to come is going to stand in place of Israel and bear their sin. And yet it is the Lord who will afflict him. He will be considered cut off, abandoned by God. And yet it is not the case. 
In fact, he will only appear that way, but it is for the sin of the people that he will be suffering, not because of the rejection of the Lord, though it is the Lord who will bring about that suffering. Look at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will sing his offspring, see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Wow. So, so who is it? This one who is coming is going to be killed. He's going to be thought rejected. And in fact, he is going to suffer bitterly by the hands of God himself. And yet in his suffering, he's going to be accomplishing the purposes of God for good. To establish a people, to bring about a kingdom that is marked by peace and prosperity. He'll see his offspring. This is, this is amazing. And again, what's amazing is this one who's going to come and bring all of these good things is going to do so not because of some deservedness of the people, but in spite of it. He's going to have to deal with sin, but he is going to deal with sin. He is. He says in verse 1 of chapter 13, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the house inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and fear for impurity. And he says, it'll come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered and I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And he goes on. He'll bring about a cleansing, a complete and a total cleansing. He'll bring about a time of repentance. And so let's go back now to focus in a little bit more on chapter 12. A lot more could be said on that, but on chapter 12. And so in the light of all of this, this coming kingdom, this coming promises to Jerusalem, the coming removal of iniquity, the coming of the Messiah who has these characteristics that are identifying him with God and yet have the characteristics of man so that he will be pierced, he will be a priest, he will be a king, he will be present. His appearing will be a time of judgment and a time of salvation. He says in verse 12, It'll be a time of judgment against the nations. And again, notice here how his focus is on Israel. He says, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. The one who is God. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the nations around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Okay. Okay. What's going on here? God is anticipating a time when the nations will come against Jerusalem for her destruction. And yet... Rather than knowing success, they will find that to have opposed Jerusalem is to bring about their own destruction. He certainly isn't talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. That's already happened. That's in the past. He's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because God was not against the nations then. He was against Jerusalem. So he's talking about something else here. He's talking about something else in which Jerusalem is a recognized city of God, the place of God's people, and yet also the hatred of the nations is focused against it. But God, this time, is fighting ultimately for Jerusalem by going against those who oppose her. 
And he says in verse four, in that day declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike the, every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, and they will consume on the right hand and on the left, all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. He will destroy those who are against his people, and he will preserve his people. Verse 7, and the Lord will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. They will come to him equally, enjoying the benefits and the glory of his salvation of his sovereign work on their behalf. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of God will David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. In other words, they will be endowed with supernatural strength, with the strength of God, and they will not be moved. God will be their protector. God will be the one who upholds them. Those who go against them will find them indefeatable, not because of their strength, but because of their being chosen by God and protected by God. In verse 9, and in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. When is this? When is this? This is future. This is a time that's yet to come. Jerusalem is established again as the place of God's dwelling and God's presence. And yet Jerusalem, because it is the place of God's dwelling and God's presence, is also the place that will be the hatred of the nations. There's an element here too in which God bringing these armies against Jerusalem as a judgment on Jerusalem too for her sins, for those who have rejected. But ultimately, it isn't to end in the rejection of his people. It's to have a different outcome. And that's where he moves us in verse 10. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. God's going to bring these nations against Jerusalem. There is an element of recognition of Jerusalem's own sin and yet the end of that will be God's work of bringing repentance to the nation. God will pour out a spirit of grace. And so they recognized that this one who is to come, and again, the one who's embodying, embodying this enigmatic presence of God, who is the branch, the promised one, who is the king, who is entering in peace and yet will come in judgment, who is the one who forgives sin, who is the one who dwells in the midst, who is the very presence of God in the midst of his people, the one who is king, to be worshipped and yet at the same time the one pierced and rejected by his own people. Certainly isn't anything that happened in their history up to this point. It's something that would be yet future. They still haven't looked on him and they have pierced and mourned. That's a day that's to come. This is a morning of godly sorrow. This is a morning that looks at this one who is going to come and says, we are guilty. We have done this. We have rejected you. 
We are culpable for your being pierced. We are the ones who need grace. And yet that is exactly what God will supply for them. Notice that he says there in verse 10, I will pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. Now, you might notice there's a translation, which is a hermeneutical issue here, of course. And that is that in the New American Standard, it has a capital S, the Spirit. Some see this as the Holy Spirit, who is going to be uh, the grace poured out and the means of the supplication uh, on his people. Some, if you have an ESV, for example, it has a small s, the Spirit of Grace. And there it would be focusing not on the Holy Spirit as a specific agent poured, uh, the person of the Godhead poured out on the people, but rather it would be looking at the results of that and saying within them, the very generate heart, they will have received this grace and cry out to God, seeing him as he is and try out in true faith and true supplication, true asking of his mercy. Well, we don't go into that discussion. It doesn't really matter a great deal in the overall intent of this because both whatever position one takes or whatever uh, translation position one takes there, both see this as a condition that comes about because of the sovereign grace of God through the Holy Spirit. So whether it's specifically the Spirit who is poured out or looking specifically at the heart of the people that's a result of God's grace being poured out on them, in either case, it is the work of the sovereign God to bring about salvation to his people. And indeed, one argument in favor of seeing this as the Spirit is the very promise of Ezekiel of this time, when he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone in your flesh, and I will pour out my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And so those are two things that are connected together. It is the Holy Spirit who brings about regeneration, and yet the fruit of that regeneration brought about by the Holy Spirit is a new heart that longs for God. Indeed, Zechariah already anticipated this in chapter 4 when he says, not by might, but by my spirit. He says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Again, these are tears of repentance and tears of sorrow. In fact, this is going to ultimately be a fulfillment of what God called them to at the very beginning of the message of Zechariah in verse 3. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you says the Lord of hosts. It'll be a time of repentance. It'll be a time of repentance that they could not bring about on their own, but that God would bring about on their behalf to assure them of his promise and salvation. Now, with that as a background, we come into the New Testament, and I'm just going to go through this very quickly, and I want to just give you uh, the fulfillment of this, the portrait presented in Zechariah, fulfilled in the person of Christ. Who is Christ? Now we have the glory of the eternal son appearing on the scene. And in John 1, 1, he is the eternal word. He is God who has been made flesh. He is God enfleshed among us. He is the promised Messiah as his whole ministry was a declaration of. And in Matthew, at the end of his ministry, he comes in on a colt, even the fowl of a donkey as Zechariah promised. He comes in on a colt in the fowl of a donkey as the king worship as such, and yet it is not long after that that he is betrayed and sold by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, for 30 
pieces of silver, which the leaders of the nation of Israel paid for the price of his betrayal and that Judas accepted. And what did they do knowing that they were wrong in taking this money or that it was corrupted money? They went and they bought a potter's field. See some similarities? He is the one who heralded as king and though betrayed, was abandoned by his disciples when taken in the night and thus was fulfilled the word that God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He is the one who was pierced by his people, given over to be crucified. John 19, 37, in fact, says this. As he hung on the cross for all these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not one bone, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. That's interesting. And you can see the nature of prophecy here. That very often God speaks of a prophetic event. But this prophetic event has is, is actually, as it's played out, has many parts to it. Has many parts to it. It's a, it's a fulfillment that happens in stages. And at various degrees of fullness. So here, as Christ is hanging on the cross, there is a fulfillment of that promise of Zechariah. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. But it's not a complete fulfillment. For there was no mourning. There was no weeping. There was no repentance. There was no spirit of grace and supplication. And so there's something yet still to this promise. This was a part of it. This was an inauguration of it. This was an initial completion of it or part of its completion. But it's not everything. And, and prophetic prophecy works that way. And the unfolding of history begins to play out the details and help us to see it in more of the fullness of its glory. And so it was here. And so also he is this one not only was crucified, but he is the one who will return with all of the holy ones with him. Indeed, Zechariah had actually anticipated that in Zechariah 14, 5. You don't have to turn there. Speaking of the Lord's return, see the consistency of scripture? Speaking of the Lord's return, the Messiah who's going to come, is going to come to Jerusalem. It's going to become in judgment first, but it's going to lead in to salvation in his presence on the earth. And yet it says at the end of verse 5 of Zechariah 14, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So this one coming is also God and he has the holy ones with him. Jesus says, this is the son of Mary. This is the one who will come. So in Matthew 16, 27, he says, for the son of man is going to come in the glory of his fathers with his angels and will repay every man according to his deeds. This is the glorious one anticipated. This is the, the portrait that was painted by Zechariah that finds its glorious fulfillment in Christ. And yet there's more to come. And so when we come to Revelation, he says, even now at the end of the first century, at the closing of the canon, the church established and now moving on into the progress of her history. He says there's yet something else to anticipate. What? That behold, he is coming on with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is. Amen. Again, this can't be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. because the context of that is the return of Christ and Christ and the God fighting against the nations. 
This is a time when, and that did not happen in 70 AD. So he's looking to something that's going to come, that's going to be fulfillment of God bringing about his promise. It's going to involve the repentance of Israel, and it's going to result, bring about the judgment of the nations. And here we see another glory as well. Let's look at in Revelation 7 then. Who are? There's a couple of questions we have here then. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, who are those who will see him and what is the nature of this mourning? Who are responding? Some see this as a reference to one group, Jews and Gentiles together, everyone. And the response is either positive, repentance from, not universalism, but from the Jews and repentance from those in the world who are uh, mourning and understanding their guilt and seeking forgiveness. Others see it as merely neutral as one group, as Jews and Gentiles from Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and yet the, the outcome ultimately of their mourning uh, undetermined. One said this, whether repentance will follow, John does not say, only that sorrow will be the outcome of the divine judgment which is arriving. Others see this as a reference to two different groups and two different responses. In other words, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, as a reference to the Jews who ultimately were the ones responsible for handing him over to be crucified. Some see this as the Romans because they're the ones who asked the Gentiles and then the Gentiles as well because they're the ones who actually pierced him. But if we take this context from Zechariah, this is a reference to the Jews most likely. And all the tribes of the earth would be a reference to then all the Gentiles. And it is most likely then that there are two kinds of mourning that will go on. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, is the mourning of repentance by the Jews who see their Messiah coming and realize their culpability. These are some of those who are the fruit of God's promise that all Israel will be saved, who are the fruit of the promise that he will turn again his saving attention to the Jews and to the land of Jerusalem. And so those who pierced him, those who are of the people who rejected him will be of the people who realize his saving promises. And the tribes of the earth here then are all of the Gentiles and their mourning will be one of fear of the judgment that is to come. They will see that he is the true Lord and that they are the recipients of his judgment, even though in the midst of all of that, they will refuse to repent. They will refuse to bow the knee before him and will remain in their rebellion. He says at the end of verse 16, after speaking of some judgments that came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. And so there will be repentance at his return and there will be continued rebellion and hardness of heart. And so this is a message of hope and it is a message of warning. It is a message of hope for those who turn from idols to serve the living and true God, as Paul described the Thessalonians. And it is a message of warning to those who remain in their rebellion. He will come when the clouds, the son of man, who will establish his kingdom. He will come as the true king and every eye will see him. And those will mourn who see him either of repentance or of fear. And then he ends this, the reminder in that is, though, that God is going to accomplish his purposes. 
And then he ends it with a statement to cap it all off, one that will be repeated throughout. We won't spend a lot of time on it here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come. And then he adds this, the Almighty. And this is the last point, the grandeur of God's supremacy overall. Alpha and Omega is a figure of speech called a Mariaism. And when you give two extremes, and that's meant to include everything in between. It is to say that everything from beginning to end is under the sovereign hand of God. He is the creator of it and the finisher of his purposes. It is the glorious, comprehensive statement of God's sovereign power. It is another way, as Isaiah 44 said, when God was defending his glory and his sovereignty over the nations to the nation of Israel, all my purposes, he says, will be established. So from the beginning to the end, God is in sovereign control. And it's certain. Again, we'll come to this theme throughout. But, you know, this is the very truth that we sing about and that we proclaim. And one of many of you, too, but my favorite hymns is this. Uh, this is my father's world. And he says, though the wrong seem all so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. Glorious phrases and truths that are here laid down in the Holy Scripture and sung by the people of God in hope and in encouragement of God who is our God. And so the questions really are this. And these are the two questions that must be answered always when confronted with the person of Christ. And that is, where do you stand with Christ? Are you one who mourns in repentance? Are you one who mourns in recognition of your guilt, but his salvation and crying out to him? Are you one who mourns and have only a fear if you have any recognition of all of his sovereign glory? So where do you stand with Christ and how are you living in light of it this day? How are you living in light of this truth? The hope is for those who have trusted him that we can live in light of this truth and confidence because God will bring it about as he's brought about every promise in the past that he has fulfilled and as he will bring about every promise for the future that he has yet to fulfill. Our salvation is glorious and secured. So with that, let me pray, and then, Father, thank you for this glorious word. And Lord, there are so many details and so many wonderful truths that your word has given to us to build in us confidence and the certainty of your salvation, to draw our hearts out of ourselves upwards to you to lean and depend on your word, knowing that all grass, grass is like, or all flesh is like grass and its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Nations rise and nations fall. Times of prosperity come and go. But over all of that, what does not change is your word and your purposes and your sovereign activity in the world you created to bring about good for your people and ultimately the righteousness and the justice and the worship that will display your glory, that will be the fruit of your grace, and that will be the delight of those who know you. 
forever and ever and ever. And I pray that we do know you. And that again, as we pray as throughout, that you would encourage our hearts with these truths. And it is in the name of Jesus who is coming with the clouds, the name of Jesus who was rejected by your people and yet according to the sovereign purposes of God endured that as a substitute for our sin. The name of Jesus who died for us and bore our condemnation and rose for us that we might have life. The name of Jesus who is king. The name of Jesus who is our Lord and Savior. It's in this strong and mighty name that we pray. Amen. All right. May the Lord bless you and uh, God willing we can be together next week.